Chapter 7 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary B. Clayton. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 7, At the Foot of the Ladder. I have said that the show business has as many grades of dignity as trade, which ranges all the way from the mammoth wholesale establishment down to the corner stand. The itinerant amusement business is at the bottom of the ladder. I had begun there, but I had no wish to stay there. In fact, I was thoroughly disgusted with the trade of a traveling showman, and although I felt that I could succeed in that line, yet I always regarded it not as an end, but as a means to something better. Longing now for some permanent, respectable business, I advertised for a partner, stating that I had $2,500 to invest and would add my unremitting personal attention to the capital and the business. This advertisement gave me an altogether new insight into human nature. Whoever wishes to know how some people live or want to live, let him advertise for a partner, at the same time stating that he has a large or small capital to invest. I was flooded with answers to my advertisements and received no less than 93 different propositions for the use of my capital. Of these, at least one-third were from porterhouse keepers, brokers, pawnbrokers, lottery policy dealers, patent medicine men, inventors, and others also made application. Some of my correspondents declined to specifically state the nature of their business, but they promised to open the door to untold wealth. I had interviews with some of these mysterious million-makers. One of them was a counterfeiter who, after much hesitation and pledges of secrecy, showed me some counterfeit coin and banknotes. He wanted $2,500 to purchase paper and ink and to prepare new dyes, and he actually proposed that I should join him in the business which promised, he declared, a safe and rich harvest. Another sedate individual, dressed in Quaker costume, wanted me to join him in an oat speculation. By buying a horse and wagon and by selling oats, bought at wholesale, in bags, he thought a good business could be done, especially as people would not be particular to measure after a Quaker. Do you mean to cheat in measuring your oats? I asked. Oh, I should probably make them hold out, he answered with a leer. One application came from a Pearl Street wool merchant, who failed a month afterwards. Then came a, quote, perpetual motion, unquote, man, who had a fortune-making machine, in which I discovered a mainspring slyly hid in a hollow post, the spring making perpetual motion, till it ran down. Finally, I went into partnership with a German named Proler, who was a manufacturer of paste blacking, waterproof paste for leather, cologne water, and bear's grease. We took the store number 101 and a half, Bowery, at a rent, including the dwelling, of $600 per annum, and opened a large manufactory of the above articles. Proler manufactured and sold the goods at wholesale in Boston, Charleston, Cleveland, and various other parts of the country. I kept the accounts and attended to sales in the store, wholesale and resale. For a while, the business seemed to prosper, at least till my capital was absorbed and notes for stock began to fall due, with nothing to meet them since we had sold our goods on long credits. 
In January 1840, I dissolved partnership with Proler, he buying the entire interest for $2,600 on credit, and then running away to Rotterdam without paying his note, and leaving me nothing but a few recipes. Proler was a good-looking, plausible, promising scamp. During my connection with Proler, I became acquainted with a remarkable young dancer named John Diamond. He was one of the first and best of the numerous Negro and breakdown dancers who have since surprised and amused the public, and I entered into an engagement with his father for his services, putting Diamond in the hands of an agent, as I did not wish to appear in the transaction. In the spring of 1840, I hired and opened the Vauxhall Garden Saloon in New York, and gave a variety of performances, including singing, dancing, Yankee stories, etc. In this saloon, Miss Mary Taylor, afterwards so celebrated as an actress and singer, made her first appearance on the stage. The enterprise, however, did not meet my expectation, and I relinquished it in August. What was to be done next? I dreaded resuming the life of an itinerant showman, but funds were low. I had a family to care for. And as nothing better presented, I made up my mind to endure the vexations and uncertainty of a tour in the West and South. I collected a company consisting of Mr. C.D. Jenkins, an excellent singer and delineator of Yankee and other characters, Master John Diamond, the dancer, Francis Lynch, an orphan vagabond, 14 years old, whom I picked up at Troy, and a fiddler. My brother-in-law, Mr. John Hallett, preceded us as agent and advertiser, and our route passed through Buffalo, Toronto, Detroit, Chicago, Ottawa, Springfield, the intermediate places, and St. Louis, where I took the steamboat for New Orleans with a company reduced by desertions to Master Diamond and the Fiddler. Arriving in New Orleans January 2nd, 1841, I had but $100 in my purse, and I had started from New York four months before with quite as much in my pocket. Excepting some small remittances to my family, I had made nothing more than current expenses, and when I had been in New Orleans a fortnight, funds were so low that I was obliged to pledge my watch as security for my board bill. But on the 16th, I received from the St. Charles Theater $500 as my half share of Diamond's benefit. The next night, I had $50. And the third night, $479 was my share of the proceeds of a grand dancing match at the theater between Diamond and a Negro dancer from Kentucky. Subsequent engagements at Vicksburg and Jackson were not so successful, but returning to New Orleans, we again succeeded admirably and afterwards at Mobile. Diamond, however, after extorting considerable sums of money from me, finally ran away, and March 12th, I started homeward by way of the Mississippi and the Ohio. While I was in New Orleans, I made the acquaintance of that genial man Tyrone Power, who was just concluding an engagement at the St. Charles Theatre. In bidding me farewell, he wished me every success and hoped we should meet again. Alas, poor Power! All the world knows how he set sail from our shores, and he and his ship were never seen again. Fanny Elsner was also in New Orleans, and when I saw seats in the dress circle sold at an average of four dollars and one-half, I gave her agent, Chevalier Henry Wyckoff, great credit for exciting public enthusiasm to the highest pitch, and I thought the prices enormous. I did not dream then that, within twelve years, I should be selling tickets in the same city for full five times that sum. At Pittsburgh, where I arrived March 30th, 
I learned that Jenkins, who had enticed Francis Lynch away from me at St. Louis, was exhibiting him at the museum under the name of Master Diamond and visiting the performance the next day i wrote jenkins an ironical review for which he threatened suit and he actually instigated r w lindsay from whom i hired joyce heth in philadelphia in eighteen thirty five and whom i had not seen since though he was then residing in pittsburgh to sue me for a pipe of brandy which it was pretended was promised in addition to the money paid him i was required to give bonds of five hundred dollars which as i was among strangers i could not immediately procure and i was accordingly thrown into jail till four o'clock in the afternoon when i was liberated the next day i caused the arrest of jenkins for trespass and assuming master diamond's name and reputation for master lynch and he was sent to jail till four o'clock in the afternoon each having had his turn at this amusement we adjourned our controversy to new york where i beat him as for lindsay I heard nothing more of his claim or him till twelve years afterwards when he called on me in Boston with an apology. He was very poor, and I was highly prosperous, and I may add that Lindsay did not lack a friend. I arrived in New York April twenty third, eighteen forty one, after an absence of eight months. Finding my family in good health, I resolved once more that I would never again be an itinerant showman. Three days afterward, I contracted with Robert Sears, the publisher, for 500 copies of Sears' pictorial illustrations of the Bible at $500, and accepting the United States agency, I opened an office May 10th at the corner of Beekman and Nassau Streets, the site of the present Nassau Bank. I had had a limited experience with that book in this way. When I was in Pittsburgh, an acquaintance, Mr. C.D. Harker, was complaining that he had nothing to do. When I picked up a New York paper and saw the advertisement of Sears' pictorial illustrations of the Bible, priced $2 a copy, Mr. Harker thought he could get subscribers, and I bought him a specimen copy, agreeing to furnish him with as many as he wanted at $1.37.5 a copy, though I had never before seen the work and did not know the wholesale price. The result was that he obtained 80 subscribers in two days and made $50. My own venture into work was not so successful. I advertised largely, had plenty of agents, and in six months sold thousands of copies, but irresponsible agents used up all my profits and my capital. While engaged in this business, I once more leased Vauxhall Saloon, opening it June 14, 1841, employing Mr. John Hallett, my brother-in-law, as manager under my direction. And at the close of the season, September 25th, we had cleared about $200. This sum was soon exhausted, and with my family on my hands and no employment, I was glad to do anything that would keep the wolf from the door. I wrote advertisements and notices for the Bowery Amphitheater, receiving for the service $4 a week, which I was very glad to get, and I also wrote articles for the Sunday papers, deriving a fair remuneration and managing to get a living. But I was at the bottom round of Fortune's Ladder, and it was necessary to make an effort which would raise me above want. I was specially stimulated to this effort by a letter which I received about this time from my esteemed friend, Honorable Thomas T. Whittlesey of Danbury. He held a mortgage of $500 on a piece of property I owned in that place, and as he was convinced that I would never lay up anything, he wrote me that I might as well pay him then as ever. This letter made me resolve to live no longer from hand to mouth, but to concentrate my energies upon laying up something for the future. 
while i was forming this practical determination i was much nearer to its realization than my most sanguine hopes could have predicted the road to fortune was close by without suspecting it i was about to enter upon an enterprise which while giving full scope for whatever tact industry and pluck i might possess was to take me from the foot of the ladder and place me many rounds above as outside clerk for the bowery amphitheater i had casually learned that the collection of curiosity comprising scudder's american museum at the corner of broadway and ann street was for sale it belonged to the daughters of mr scudder and was conducted for their benefit by john fursman under the authority of mr john heath administrator the price asked for the entire collection was fifteen thousand dollars it had cost its founder mr scudder probably fifty thousand dollars and from the profits of the establishment he had been able to leave a large competency to his children the museum however had been for several years a losing concern and the heirs were anxious to sell it looking at this property i thought i saw that energy tact and liberality were all he needed to make it a paying institution and i determined to purchase it if possible you buy the american museum said a friend who knew the state of my funds what do you intend buying it with brass i replied for silver and gold have i none the museum building belonged to mr francis w olmstead a retired merchant to whom i wrote stating my desire to buy the collection and that although i had no means if it could be purchased upon reasonable credit i was confident that my tact and experience added to a determined devotion to business would enable me to make the payments when due i therefore asked him to purchase the collection in his own name to give me a writing securing it to me provided i made the payments punctually including the rent of his building to allow me twelve dollars and a half a week on which to support my family and if at any time i failed to meet the installment due i would vacate the premises and forfeit all that might have been paid to that date in fact mr olmstead i continued in my earnestness you may bind me in any way and as tightly as you please only give me a chance to dig out or scratch out and i will do so or forfeit all the labor and trouble i may have incurred in reply to this letter which i took to his house myself he named an hour when i could call on him and as i was there at the exact moment he expressed himself pleased with my punctuality he inquired closely as to my habits and antecedents and i frankly narrated my experiences as a caterer for the public mentioning my amusement ventures in Vauxhall Garden, the circus, and in the exhibitions I had managed at the South and West. "'Who are your references?' he inquired. "'Any man in my line,' I replied, "'from Edmund Simpson, manager of the Park Theatre, or William Niblo, to Messrs. Welsh, June, Titus, Turner, Angvine, or other circus or menagerie proprietors, also Moses Y. Beach of the New York Sun. "'Can you get any of them to call on me?' he continued." I told him that I could, and the next day my friend Niblo rode down and had an interview with Mr. Olmstead, while Mr. Beach and several other gentlemen also called, and the following morning I waited upon him for his decision. I don't like your references, Mr. Barnum, said Mr. Olmstead, abruptly, as soon as I entered the room. I was confused and said, I regretted to hear it. They all speak too well of you, he added, laughing in fact they all talk as if they were partners of yours and intended to share the profits nothing could have pleased me better he then asked me what security i could offer in case he concluded to make the purchase for me and it was finally agreed that if he should do so 
he should retain the property till it was entirely paid for, and should also appoint a ticket-taker and accountant, at my expense, who should render him a weekly statement. I was further to take an apartment hitherto used as a billiard-room in an adjoining building, allowing, therefore, $500 a year, making a total rent of $3,000 per annum on a lease of 10 years. He then told me to see the administrator and heirs of the estate to get their best terms and to meet him on his return to town a week from that time. I at once saw Mr. John Heath, the administrator, and his price was 15000 I offered 10000 payable in seven annual installments with good security. After several interviews, it was finally agreed that I should have it for $12,000 payable as above, possession to be given on the 15th of November. Mr. Olmsted assented to this, and a morning was appointed to draw and sign the writings. Mr. Heath appeared, but said he must decline proceeding any further in my case, as he had sold the collection to the directors of Peel's Museum, an incorporated institution, for $15,000, and had received $1,000 in advance. I was shocked and appealed to Mr. Heath's honor. He said that he had signed no writing with me was in no way legally bound, and that it was his duty to do the best he could for the heirs. Mr. Olmsted was sorry, but could not help me. The new tenants would not require him to incur any risk, and my matter was at an end. Of course, I immediately informed myself as to the character of Peel's Museum Company. It proved to be a band of speculators who had bought Peel's collection for a few thousand dollars, expecting to join the American Museum with it, issue and sell stock to the amount of $50,000, pocket $30,000 profits, and permit the stockholders to look out for themselves. I went immediately to several of the editors, including Major M. M. Noah, M. Y. Beach, my good friends West, Herrick, and Ropes of the Atlas, and others, and stated my grievances. Now, I said, if you will grant me the use of your columns, I'll blow that speculation sky high. They all consented, and I wrote a large number of squibs cautioning the public against buying the museum stock, ridiculing the idea of a board of broken-down bank directors engaging in the exhibition of stuffed monkey and gander skins, appealing to the case of the Zoological Institute, which had failed by adopting such a plan as the one now proposed, and finally I told the public that such a speculation would be infinitely more ridiculous than Dickens, quote, Grand United Metropolitan Hot Muffet and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company, end quote. The stock was as dead as a herring. I then went to Mr. Heath and asked him when the directors were to pay the other $14,000. On the 26th day of December, or forfeit the $1,000 already paid, was the reply. I assured him that they would never pay it, that they could not raise it, and that he would ultimately find himself with the museum collection on his hands, and if once I started off with an exhibition for the South, I would not touch the museum at any price. Now, I said, if you will agree with me confidentially, that in case these gentlemen do not pay you on the 26th of December, I may have it on the 27th for $12,000, I will run the risk and wait in this city until that date. He readily agreed to the proposition, but said he was sure they would not forfeit their $1,000. Very well, said I. All I ask of you is that this arrangement shall not be mentioned. He assented. On the 27th day of December, at 10 o'clock a.m., I wish you to meet me in Mr. Olmsted's apartments, prepared to sign the writings, 
provided this incorporated company do not pay you $14,000 on the 26th. He agreed to this, and by my request put it in writing. From that moment I felt that the museum was mine. I saw Mr. Olmsted and told him so. He promised secrecy and agreed to sign the documents if the other parties did not meet their engagement. This was about November 15th, and I continued my shower of newspaper squibs at the new company, which could not sell a dollar's worth of its stock. Meanwhile, if anyone spoke to me about the museum, I simply replied that I had lost it. End of chapter 7. Recording by Gary B. Clayton.